And this morning we'll be looking at Matthew 26, verses 31 through 35. Matthew chapter 26, beginning of verse 31. Listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, that this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this, His holy word. O gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks to you, Father, that you have given us your word, which is for us the bread of life, the word of truth, our only infallible rule for faith and life. And as we come to this particular passage this morning, we ask, Father, that you would so richly bless your word to us. That your spirit would give us understanding and insight. And that as your word goes forth in the power of the spirit, that it would truly find within our own hearts that rich, fertile soil which will bring about great and abundant fruit for your glory. We ask now for your blessing upon your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, history has no shortage of leaders who rise to power who become consumed with that power and they puff themselves up with great pride and then they come crashing down to ruin. And whether that ruin comes uh, from being defeated by their enemies or uh, sometimes even they're overthrown from within their own ranks or even losing support of the people due to moral failings and indiscretions. Now, this is not just found at the top, for example, uh, of kings or presidents of a nation, but but even at lower levels of government, governors and senators and representatives, all proving true the wisdom which the Lord gave to Solomon. In Proverbs 16, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. But this isn't just uh, a truth that's applicable only in the political realm. We see it, uh, for example, uh, in business. We see it really in, in every day, in every, everyday lives. And sadly, we even see it in the church. Christian leaders, pastors, teachers, and elders who gain some prominence, either 
broadly or even just within their own circle, they're tempted by the glamour of power and honor and, and pride. And then they come crashing down. Not only disrupting their families and their ministries, but oftentimes bringing scorn of the world, the scorn of the world upon Christ and His church, fueling their hatred and fueling their mockery. Now, I'm sure you can think of many examples of these kinds of public scandals and and downfalls, and always at the root of it is pride. An exaltation of self above everyone and everything else to the point where the individual becomes really self-deluded into thinking that they're invincible to any kind of failure. Now it may take some time, but eventually the fall and destruction come to the one with a proud and haughty spirit. Well, this becomes the warning for us in our passage this morning. Jesus warns His disciples of what's to come. And we see the disciples, especially Peter, foolishly boast of things of what he knows not. A warning to us to constantly be vigilant, that we keep our own hearts in check, That we don't boast or become puffed with spiritual pride, even if we would do so as a so-called expression of our love and devotion to our Lord and Savior. And so as Jesus and His disciples uh, head out to the Mount of Olives, after uh, celebrating the Passover and after Jesus uh, instituting the Lord's Supper, Jesus makes another prediction about His coming death, and in particular, He reveals how the disciples are going to respond when it all goes down. Verse 31, All of you will be made to stumble because of Me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Now though this isn't perhaps as horrific sounding as uh, the previous prediction that Jesus made, just a uh, probably a, a, an hour, a couple hours before, where he said that one of the twelve was going to betray him. Well, this still would have been quite a shock, as not just one, but as he warns that all the disciples, all of them, would be made to stumble because of him. They would all be made to stumble and to sin. Now, not uh, irrevocably or or to their destruction like a Judas betrayal would be, but they would all be overcome with fear and, and seemingly take offense that they were even associated with Jesus. And this stumbling will come in the form of their scattering and fleeing from Jesus' side when the soldiers come to arrest him. Indeed, this is exactly what happens. Jesus warns them that all of them will be made to stumble and scatter. And then if you jump down to verse 56, you see, then all the disciples forsook him and fled. And so it happened just as 
Jesus predicted. Again, the forsaking isn't a complete turning away from believing in Him, but it's, it's running away in fear and uh, in the confusion and the heat of the moment. They all would leave and abandon Jesus to face His trial and His death alone. The disciples will suddenly forget their commitment and loyalty to Jesus and turn away from Him really at the very hour, the very time when He would most need the support and encouragement of His close companions and friends. Brothers and sisters, this, this is just another way in which we see that Jesus would suffer and be humiliated for us because of our sins. He would be abandoned and left alone by all his friends. But Jesus shares this prediction with them, not as a way to rebuke them or make them feel bad. In fact, it's intended to do just the opposite. Yes, they're going to be made to sin as they flee from their Lord and Master, but now they must be, he's telling them now so that they can be prepared and so that they can understand. So that when this happens, they aren't so overcome with grief and sorrow that they turn bitter and fall deeper into sin. Turning away from confession, turning away from repentance as Judas would do in response to his sin of betrayal. And so Jesus is warning them, look, I'm telling you this now so that you know it's going to happen and that you don't become overwhelmed and dismayed by it. And so they ought to be encouraged then as they understand that this is going to happen as part of God's larger plan and purpose because it's what God has declared as the Scriptures themselves reveal. And so Jesus says, For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Well, here Jesus is quoting from the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah uh, chapter 13, verse 7. And in context of, of Zechariah 13, uh, it's a, a messianic passage, uh, a passage of hope and renewal that the Lord reveals to His people. Now, Zechariah uh, prophesied at a time when the Jews had returned from exile and were now rebuilding their lives in Jerusalem, including the, uh, the rebuilding of the walls of the city and the temple. And in the midst of this time, the people were discouraged. And they continued to battle against the pressures of syncretism and idolatry all around them, which, of course, were the very sins that led to their exile in the first place. Well, at the beginning of Zechariah 13, God promises to establish a fountain in Jerusalem, a fountain to cleanse sin and and impurity, in particular, to wash away the idols, the false prophets, and the unclean spirits, that these all will now be removed. And then as part of a refining process for the people, we read in Zechariah 13, beginning of verse 6, And one will say to him, What are these wounds between your arms? Then he will answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. 
Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones, and it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. I want you to note especially that, that the Lord God is the one who, who is commanding that the shepherd be struck. And the sheep are going to be scattered when the shepherd is struck. But note also that the sheep are not going to be scattered and lost forever. A third part is, is going to be refined. There's going to be a, a faithful remnant preserved. They're going to be tested and they will be restored to their place in the covenant promises. They will be the Lord's people and He will be their God. And so despite the scattering, there is a hope and a promise that remains for the people of God. Well, then what is the connection to what Jesus is predicting will soon happen to him and his disciples here in, in Matthew 26? Well, the shepherd, the shepherd will be struck down and then it will be by the hands of men. It will ultimately be by the Lord, according to his eternal decree. And it will be Jesus, the good shepherd. The one who came to lay down his life for his sheep. He will be struck down on the cross. But his striking down begins when he is arrested. Which will soon come even this very night. And then as a result, the sheep, that is the disciples, will quickly disperse and they'll flee from the scene. Now, as we noted before, this is exactly what happened in verse 56, that all the disciples forsook him and fled. Jesus will stand alone. And ironically, with Judas the betrayer being the only disciple to be left standing at his side. All his friends his faithful friends have gone. But the betrayer, this former companion, remains there. So Jesus uses this prophecy of Zechariah to show his disciples that even their sinful scattering and forsaking him has been appointed. It will happen as God decreed. But as in Zechariah 13, there remains a promise of comfort and hope that Jesus now offers. In verse 32 he says, But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. The shepherd, after being struck down, will rise. And he will be reunited with his sheep in Galilee. Now I want you to note here the confidence that Jesus expresses, but after I have been raised. And he has no doubts. Even before his death, he knows his death is coming, but he has no doubts about his victory over death. Because the Heavenly Father has made a promise 
And Jesus has received it and clings to it. For Jesus, even this promise of resurrection was deeply embedded in the Scriptures written long before. For example, even as we sang earlier uh, from Psalm 16, verse 10, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or even in the psalm that Jesus and His disciples just sang as we considered last week. Psalm 118, verse 18. The Lord has chastened me severely, but He has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them and I will praise the Lord. He will gain the victory over death. And in life He will go through the gates as He enters into the heavenly presence of His Father. And so with these promises bound in in Jesus' heart and, and freshly on His lips, Jesus is confident in the power of God to raise the dead. And as comforting as these words are to Jesus, well, He's now trying to comfort His own disciples and reassure them that even though He will be struck down, He will return to them as their shepherd, as their Lord, and as their Savior. For not only will the shepherd rise, but the sheep will be regathered after being scattered. And in fact, Jesus will go before them uh, to Galilee to gather them once again to Himself. And so the reassurance for the disciples is that their scattering doesn't mean that they, they have totally and finally forsaken Him. Again, it's true that they will stumble. But they're still His sheep. And He will give His life for them. So that they might then be forgiven. And He will forgive them. And He will gather them together in Galilee. In their home. The place where He first called them to Himself to follow after Him. Again, this should have been a great reassurance and comfort to the disciples. But Peter, foolish and impulsive Peter, Peter passes right over this reassurance and he immediately makes a strong objection. Verse 33, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Such bold words. And surely from, from Peter's perspective, they're, they're rooted in loyalty and, and devotion to Jesus. After all, the, the Gospels tell us of Peter's great love for Jesus. Right? Uh, Peter had the privilege of, of being part of the inner, inner circle of Jesus' disciples. Right? He wasn't just one of the twelve, but he was one of the, the three who went with Jesus on particular, uh, that, that the other disciples were not... Um, privilege to attend. For example, going up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter was the one, if you remember, who made that bold confession of truth. That Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now on the one hand, we, we can't blame Peter for his response. Jesus has already revealed that, that one of his disciples was going to betray him. And, and certainly that had to be upsetting to all the other disciples. 
And so Peter wanted to show his zeal and devotion to Jesus by assuring Jesus that, that he wouldn't be the one who would betray him. Look, it's not going to be me. I'm going to show you. I'm going to tell you right now. It's not going to be me. And he certainly he wasn't going to be the one who would betray Jesus. And he certainly wasn't going to be the one who would scatter and abandon Jesus in his great hour of need. But as with the zeal Peter expressed earlier after he made after he made that great confession about Jesus back in chapter 16 remember when when Peter makes that confession and then Jesus shortly after goes on to share with his disciples for the very first time that he must go to Jerusalem suffer many things and be put to death and remember Peter boldly and with great zeal stood up and said may it never be Do you remember Jesus' stunning response to Peter at that time? He said, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And it's notable that when Jesus says, you are an offense to me, it's the same word that's used here, that you will be made to stumble. Now you would think that Peter would have learned from that experience. Right? That it's sheer foolishness to object to anything that Jesus says. But Peter, like us, if we're truly honest with ourselves, was stubborn and headstrong. And so he knew that there had to be a better way. He knew better. There had to be a way that didn't involve Jesus dying and a, and a way that didn't involve Him being abandoned by His close companions. And even if there, that was unavoidable, well, everyone else may fail Him. But not me. I won't. And here we see how zeal and, devo- and devotion can quickly become pride and, and arrogance if it's not grounded in understanding, especially the understanding of God's truth. Indeed, with Peter's response, you see, he's already proving Jesus' point. Because Peter is already beginning to stumble as his pride will bring him crashing down. Now note these things about Peter's response. First, He rejects, he flat out rejects the authoritative words of Jesus. Jesus was was, uh, honored among the people because he spoke as as one who had authority and and not as the, the scribes. And the disciples even had confessed that you, you know, you, when G, they were, uh, people were going away from Jesus because he was sharing hard things. And, and Jesus said to his disciples, Are you also going to go? And they said, No, because you hold the words of life and the words of truth. But here, Peter's rejecting the authoritative words of Jesus. Jesus tells the disciples, including P- Peter, All of you will be made to stumble. Not all of you might, or all of you may be tempted, 
but all of you will be made to stumble. And again, after everything they've been through together, Peter should have caught on by now that if Jesus has said something is going to happen, well then indeed it is going to come to pass. But Peter defies this by emphatically saying, I will never be made to stumble. Peter was certain that Jesus was wrong. And secondly, Peter also rejects the truth of Scripture. Jesus said that it is written, and then he quoted from Zechariah 13. Well, if it's written, then it's God's word. It's God's decree and God's will that it shall come to pass. But again, Peter defies the word of God by saying, no, that's wrong. It can't be. I will never be made to stumble. And then thirdly, Peter exalts himself over the other disciples. His arrogance puffs him up above everyone else as if Jesus had said in verse 31, well, all of you except for Peter. You see, Peter didn't see himself included in that all-encompassing all. He was the exception. No, they all may fall away. They, They all may stumble in weakness. They all may crack under pressure. But I'm Peter. I'm the rock. I will not be weak. I will not crack. I will not crumble. I will not be made to stumble. And so he exalts himself above the others. And then fourthly, Peter rejects even the personal rebuke that Jesus gives to him in verse 34. Jesus says, Assuredly I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now note here that the emphasis is all on Peter. And Jesus said to him, that is to Peter, assuredly. Right? He's saying, look, Peter, listen. Pay attention. I'm speaking this truth to you. Assuredly, I say to you that right now, this very night, within just a few short hours, you, Peter, and the, the you here is singular, you, Peter, only you, no one else, but you will deny me. You see, the others, they're only going to scatter. But Peter, not only will you scatter and flee, but see, you're going to deny me. You're going to disown me. You're actually going to renounce any claim to me. You're going to refuse to acknowledge and even recognize me. And to add insult to injury, you you won't only deny me just once in the heat of the moment because that could be excusable. And not even twice. Though certainly shame on you that you didn't learn from your mistake the first time. But you see, Peter, three times. Three times you will deny me. Three times is, is deliberate. It's inexcusable. 
you will know exactly what you're doing. Three times you will die me this very night. And how does Peter respond to this rebuke? He only further digs in his heels. And he boasts in verse 35. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. You're wrong, Jesus. You see, it's not going to happen. You see, because I'm the one, I'm the only one who decides what I do or what I don't do. I'm in control of my life. I make my own decisions. I'm my own captain. And if I say, I will not deny you, then I will not deny you. In fact, I would die first before I denied you. Brothers and sisters, this is pure and undefiled pride and arrogance. And Peter is consumed with it. And he's blinded by it. Indeed, as we've mentioned, he's already beginning to stumble. And then finally, Peter's pride stirs up dissent within the ranks of the other disciples. You see, all it takes is one person to be filled with pride and and if not kept in check, well then it will spread like a cancer quickly infecting others who will then go on the defensive and begin espousing the same pride. And this is what happens here. The others, perhaps feeling slighted and not wanting to be outdone, they all chime in, verse 35, and so said all the disciples. Even if I had to die with you, I will not deny you. They all said it. They all chimed in. In some ways, it kind of stirs up that debate they had earlier, about that foolish debate about which one was going to be greatest. You see, none of them were going to let anyone else outdo them. And so they all began to swell with foolish pride against the direct words of Jesus and the Word of God. But I will say this. In all of Peter's denial and rejection of what Jesus had said, we do see something a little different here. You see, it seems as though Peter, from that first time when he, when Jesus first revealed that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer and, and to be put to death, it seems as though Peter has now resigned himself to the fact that the shepherd Jesus will be stricken and killed. Even claiming that he would die with Jesus if necessary. But again, he tries to show his zeal for devotion but he does so out of ignorance and a lack of understanding. And in doing so, he, he misses the promise that Jesus gives of the resurrection, of the reun- reuniting in Galilee, and of course the forgiveness that will be there waiting. Peter has puffed him up, himself up so big that there's really only one direction for him to go. 
and that is down. So what can we then glean from this account of pride before the fall? Well, first we should consider zeal and devotion. And certainly it's good to it's a good thing to be zealous and devoted, especially in our, in our faith and in our commitment to our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and especially in our own time when standing for the truth and expressing our devotion of faith in Christ, it can be costly. Leading to persecution and scorn from a godless world that's increasingly hostile to the idea of there being just one true living God. But at the same time, we shouldn't be reckless with our zeal. No, our zeal and devotion should always be tempered by God's revealed will as found in His Word. We shouldn't disregard God's law in the name of zeal for the Lord. We should remember how He's called us to live, even following the very example that Jesus Himself set for us. To be a servant to all. To esteem others above ourselves. To deny ourselves in humility. And by loving our neighbors, even our enemies. In the name of Christ Jesus. And so our zeal and devotion must be grounded in the truth of God's word. Secondly, we should be challenged to... Not look down upon others who may, who may be weaker and who still struggle in sin. Right? We shouldn't exalt ourselves above others in the church or even those who are outside the church. We shouldn't say with Peter, well they all may, but I will never. Lest we forget that if it were not for the grace of God, there we would also be. See, sometimes it's easy become complacent here in the church. Right? We're surrounded by, by good Christians and, and we have fellowship and we're with those who are like-minded. But there's always the temptation that we can become so inward-focused that we forget that there are others out there who need to hear the gospel of truth. And so instead of prideful scorn... And an us versus them mentality, we must reach out to them in Jesus' name and show them the love of Christ, to, to pray with and, and for them, to share the gospel with them, to minister to their needs, that if the Spirit wills, He might then minister to their hearts and draw them to, the, to Himself. And then finally, we should also be wary of spiritual pride and, and self-exaltation. You know, we may have overcome many sins in our lives. Maybe we have gained some great victories. But we need to be aware that our enemy is still out there. And that he is relentless. He, he never rests. That Satan is constantly on the prowl looking for someone to devour And he especially often targets the people of God. So don't be so puffed with pride and arrogance. You claim that you'll never fall prey to such and such sin. Whether it's lying or stealing or cheating or 
committing adultery or drunkenness or abusing of yourself or of others by various means, even murder. Now it's true that in Christ we do have victory over sin and we can live a victorious Christian life by the grace of God. But remember Paul's challenge in in Romans chapter 7 where he clearly shows that there is still a remnant of the sin nature in us that wars against our desire to do what is right and good. And Satan is aware of that and he taps into that to tempt us and to draw us away. And so because of that, we're commanded to not tempt or test God, saying, okay, God, I can handle it. Then we're not to give the devil a foothold. You see, we should never think that we're too strong to be taken down by sin. Because when we do, it likely means that we've begun to trust in our own strength rather than in the all-sufficient grace of God, which is our only source of strength and power. And so, beloved, forsake pride and seek to live in humble reliance upon the grace of God to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we do rejoice and give thanks for this reminder and this warning against pride. And and we look at the apostles as, oftentimes we look at them as, as super Christians. And they truly were extraordinary. That you, They were ordinary men and yet you used them in extraordinary ways. But they were still just ordinary men. Even as we are. And that certainly, if, if Peter could stumble and fall, well then we can stumble and fall as well. And so we pray, Father, that your Spirit, even now, would be working in our hearts, that you'd be rooting out any sense of, of pride or arrogance or self-exaltation, and that we would truly be mindful of our own weakness, that our only strength comes from you, from your gracious hands through your spirit and through the Lord Jesus Christ and and what he's accomplished for us. And so we ask, Lord, to, to keep us humble. But even as we're humble, as we're humbled, we pray that you would give us great boldness to be rooted in your word, to not bound forward in foolishness, but with knowledge and understanding of the truth of your word and what you have called us to do, the promises of your word, that we would have boldness to go into the world and to share the gospel with those who are in need. And we pray, Lord, especially that you would lead us to those who have you prepared and appointed as we would share the gospel with them, that they would respond in faith. And we know that as we do this, we will 
will face opposition and scorn. But we pray, Father, that even that would be a great witness as we incur the the wrath and persecution of a world that hates you. That would be a witness to the truth of what we proclaim. And so we ask for your blessing upon us, that you would enable us to be such faithful servants in all humility going forth to bring glory to your name in all that we do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.